Welcome back to this episode of the Your Daily Pass podcast. You're here with your co-hosts, Fiona Daly and Courtney Passfield. We are bringing back another beautiful, raw and authentic, unedited conversation for you guys to listen to. So enjoy. My name is Kira Wackett. I'm a licensed mental health professional specializing in eating disorders, shame and anxiety and trauma. I'm a mom to my amazing daughter, Everly, and I am with my husband, Jordan, out here in Portland, Oregon, living life and learning every day. Fiona, we are back with another conversation. We are. And this one's a good one. Like this one's one of those ones that like it's uncomfortable to even start because you're like, oh, this could show up a little shit, but it's going to be good. You're also like, I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to be good. Feel it in my waters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we're going to talk about shame and the stories that we like to live in. So the stories that we exist in. And Mm. I just feel like that's something that every, every human being can like go, oh, yep. Relatable. However, we all want to hide from that. Yes. Like, relatable time. and avoidable. And, and very avoidable. <laughs> yes. That's exactly right. And I think exactly. it's one of those things that like if you don't know that you do this, it's because you're doing this. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Like it's one of those sort of. Have a look in the mirror. Yes. And then listen. Yes, exactly. So today we get to introduce Kira Wackett to the podcast. Kira, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. And I just think, you know, shame is just one of those things that like, let's, let's bring it up, right? Let's, let's go all in deep. But before we go talking about shame, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a licensed mental health therapist. I specialize in shame and eating disorders, although that sort of professional title came by way of managing my own trauma, managing my own shame stories, still kind of in the early stages, I think, of shame recovery as many of us are and will probably stay for most of our lives since it's kind of an iterative process. I am a mom to a newly two-year-old who has so much personality and love and warmth and is teaching me a lot more about, I think, my professional work than I got in my master's program. So (laughs) kind of on the train of learning is what it means to be a parent, but also what it means to be a support person in this world right now. I think that kind of the lens I'm feeling myself showing up with, even as we sit here, is really this kind of binary between that professional kind of being a support person, but also recognizing that even as we talk about shame, so much of my shame and the stories I've had are about, I've had to be something for everyone else my whole life. And so my job has always been to take care of people from early parentification, childhood trauma up through now. And so it's this as I'm working with people on their shame, it's this constant sort of back end working through to make sure I'm not doing it because I feel like that's what I have to do to be worthy, to be loved. And so it's, yeah, a lot of layers, but coming to speak from all aspects today. I think that's what I find so interesting, you know, when you do do any work, right? Any work on yourself or if you're a person that likes to help other people, you know, like this podcast, like we often say, you know, every person that we talk to is more about us than us sharing it with everybody else because we learn so much. Yeah. And it's just like the best way to show show your side that you don't always show you know what I mean like and I know for Fiona and I yeah exactly like be vulnerable and show yeah just the side that you just really don't love to show to people but the more you do it the more I don't know the more you break through those and you I think you build better connections yeah because you're not running on a highlight reel yeah there's nothing worse than that Mm. Mm. Well, it's when you're like, I think about this notion of, so I was talking about shame as your performance self. So who am I performing as? So who's the person I have to be to be good enough to be in this room, to be worthy enough of love and connection? So the tension point between what's the performance self versus what's my whole true self. And when you're interviewing people, your goal is connection because you want to share their stories. And the only way that you can get there is to allow yourself to take the performance down. So you're sitting in that space of you have to let your ego take a back seat. You have to, cause that's, you know, we can get into that, but that's really where shame is rooted in is this self-preservation tactic. And you have to be willing to let that go 
to feel it, to see it, to connect so that their stories and yours can come through in these discussions. Mm. That's so true, isn't it? Yeah. I have not thought of shame like that, you know, like that you actually need to let your ego take a backseat. Yes. And that it's self-preservation. But it's true, isn't it? It is. It's keeping us keeping us safe, I guess, in a sense, where we're sort of we're not getting out and about and doing all the crazy things that we, you know, wish we could do. Yeah, exactly. The shame, the shame of it. So, what got you into, you know, going into this realm of shame? When I started, so I was this high-functioning, high-performing kind of perfectionist child. A lot of that was birthed, again, out of a lot of trauma. My mom was a single mom who didn't get diagnosed with bipolar disorder until, unfortunately, I was in high school, and she was in the prison system here in the U.S., And so I grew up with her struggling with really severe substance use, not knowing how to manage what was going on in her brain because she didn't have information that she needed to figure out a way to to put a story together of what do I do with this. And so I think my role really became early on to be that person that was, I always have it together. I don't have any needs. You're good. I'll take care of you. And that kind of dictated most of my life. I moved a lot, lived with different family members, kind of became a chameleon. So even before I left, I moved away from my mom when I was 13. And even before that, kind of, I think as a result of her mental health distress, but a lot of other variables, we had moved, I think, 10 or 11 times before I was in fifth grade. So I kind of adapted this chameleon personality, but the, the personality was around how do you blend in and then work your way to the top. So shame is really rooted in this idea of our core belief about ourselves being that I'm not worthy unless I'm not good enough, unless, you know, depending on where we live in the world, there are aspects of beauty standards, body size, race, gender identity, grades that you get, the school that you go to, the socioeconomic status, all of these elements of what you need to do. And so I built up this foundation of, I have to be the best in all of these things in order to even hold a candle to the people in the room. And I think that carried into so much of my early adulthood too. I think one of the maybe second, third words I ever had was doctor. And I always told people I was going to be a doctor, even as a little kid. And I pursued that all through undergrad, all through, I mean, thousands of dollars on the medical college admissions test prep, the actual test, the applications, all hating it, but believing that if I didn't do that, it would send a message that I wasn't good enough. So I always kind of had these little tension points of, gosh, keep the performance up, keep the performance up. If you don't, they're going to see you. They're going to find out about you. And I already felt like I was coming in with these cards of like, your mom's in prison, you're living with other people, you you know, your mom didn't want you is kind of the narrative you have in your head, even though logically, I knew better at the time. And I obviously very much know a different story now. But this idea of, you know, being seen a certain way, looking a certain way, what grades did I have? And so I think it wasn't until it was 2012. And it was unfortunately after my cousin, who was my best friend or one of my best friends, we had gone to school together for most of middle school and high school, he was killed. And he was like the exact opposite of me, like annoyingly so. Like he he knew who he was and he didn't care who liked him. Like he just want, he wanted to be a teacher for little, little kids. And he just wanted every kid to feel special. He didn't need the credit. He didn't need any, like he was so rooted and I found it annoying and I assumed it was fake because I think the more we experience shame and the more we perform, we couldn't possibly believe that other people aren't chasing that same end point. And so after he died, I was still in the process of med school applications and sounds like a really probably dumb Hallmark movie, but I went to Nepal and did this sort of mission trip concept. Mostly it was just about bringing supplies to remote places in the Himalayas. And I was sitting on top of this mountain and I had this moment where it was just like, what the fuck are you doing with your life? (laughs) You hate, 
You hate your relationship. You hate where you're living. You hate the idea of being a doctor. You hate everything about this. But I was standing there petrified to do anything different. And I think that was this culmination point of, I need to figure out what's under here. And I need to figure out a way to call this out because I think I'm not the only person doing that. And then, you know, fast forward now about 10 years since that time, that really started my journey of exploration from a professional standpoint and personal standpoint of what is this feeling? Why does this happen? In the midst of all of these different things, I had had an eating disorder, some really severe PTSD, all these other things that were going on that I was learning to deal with. But it was, that was always kind of like the coping skill for something underneath. And I think once I had these moments and I experienced, unfortunately, this really terrible loss. It was this invitation to sort of get clear on what I'm doing will continue to put me at the top and I will continue to get this external validation. But the cost was so high and it sort of made me question, is it worth it? And then as I pursued sort of my master's degree and started to get into counseling, I realized that pretty much everybody's experience boils down to this, this idea of our distress coming from this feeling like we're not good enough. We're not lovable. We're not worthy. And we're always chasing for that because without it, we don't have genuine connection and, and we're just lonely. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to our primal years, like if we don't have that, we do not survive. Exactly. You, you know what I mean? Like you have to stay within the group to be able to survive life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Saber-toed tiger comes, you need to be able to do that. Exactly. So it's, it's one of those things that is so this is a, a brain that we're talking about that is however many years old, right? Right. Right. I mean, shame. And that is the thing is shame is a very specific fear. It is a fear of connection. It's the threat to connection and belonging. And up there with Maslow's hierarchy of needs of food, water, shelter, sur- survival is dependent on connection. Exactly what you said. And so of course, if I believe that my connection is going to go away because I weigh too much or I wear a different size or my skin color is a certain way or my identity is a certain way. Like think about all the norms that we have and the cultures that we live in. Of course, you're going to be constantly going, okay, so what do I do to fix this and this and this? And it's like a boat with a bunch of little leaks and you just keep trying to put band-aids over the holes, but it's leaking and leaking and leaking. And over time you burn out. And that's where we see, you know, major depression, anxiety, disorders, panic attacks, chronic fatigue and burnout, pain conditions, things like that. Mm, wow. That Isn't is it amazing that it all roots down to shame. Yeah, exactly. But but while you're talking and while you're saying it, it, it makes so much sense. But so we much. just never see it. No, exactly. Because we're too scared to show it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think it's this idea too of, So unless you're born with an inability to experience emotions, which is a very small percentage of the population, all of us experience shame. All of us experience, you know, again, I work in the eating disorder field and people are like, well, tell me about, you know, these people with this diagnosed eating disorder. I was like, well, first let's expand the scope and talk about the fact that every one of us hates our bodies at some point in our lives. Every one of us has a disordered relationship with food at some point in our lives. This is a spectrum of distress that we're talking about. And if we only address it over here, we're not hitting all these other people that are living in this constant state of distress. And I think shame is that it's, all of us are sort of on a different spectrum of how intense it feels at any given moment. And it ebbs and flows at different points in time and who we're around, but each of us reaches a threshold at different points. And maybe they're mini burnouts, you know, when people say, Oh, I, I go, go, go. And then I crash. And then I come back and I go, go, go. And then I crash. And that was kind of my cycle versus people that can keep it running, keep it going. And then they burn out, you know, 20, 30 years from now, or those that just dip real early into life. And they're like, screw it. I'm never going to be anything. So this is the life that I'm going to accept because I have fully internalized a belief that I'm never going to be worthy of something more than that. That's what I find about belief and habits and these things that are so ingrained with us because we, we do think that life is supposed to be a certain way. You know, we all have, there's all these stigmas around and like you say, depends on where you're from that could look completely different, but you know, there's all these ways of how life should be and there's ways how life should be as a society. And then, then you've got the ones as yourself, you know, you're like, okay, well I'm going to follow in these footsteps or I'm going to be like this person or, you know, and especially for somebody who does 
um, struggle with food and that being my coping mechanism, it's one of those things. You're like, oh, no, no, I'm always just going to be the bigger person. Why try? Why try? Mm -hmm. Why all these sort of things? And it's so interesting just to see that light and go, okay, right, everybody does go through it, but how can we work through it? Mm -hmm. When I think it's this idea of we are a product of circumstances and stories. And so there are certain circumstances that are outside of our control. Genetics, again, if we look at some of the aspects of identity, when we're thinking about gender, race, components of that, some of the things that happened to us, you know, COVID, completely out of our control. We couldn't have stopped that from happening to us. Those are circumstances. But then if you look at them, the stories we tell ourselves as a result of those things, that's where I think we get stuck. And that's where the opportunity lies because it's the story we tie to it that kills us. It's the story, you know, literally and metaphorically, it's the story that we tie to it that keeps us either in a state of stagnation or in that state of hustle culture, or in that state of finding internal peace and rooting. And so I think there's sort of this, well, gosh, this sounds terrible. And all of us have been telling us ourselves these stories for, you know, however old we are, essentially. But then you think there is actually so much we can do with it. And it sounds overly simplistic. But the reality is, the answers are incredibly easy, or simple, maybe, but they are never done. Like there's no end point where you don't feel shame. It's developing a practice where you have to do it every day. And so it's easy, but it's exhausting. You know, sometimes it would be like, I'd rather throw my hands up and be like, fine, I'm just going to be this person. Or like, fine, I will settle for the marriage that I, you know, don't have a good relationship in. We never talk to each other, whatever. At least we've got this. And you start to do these sort of fine, but, or fine, it's okay because this, this, and this sort of idea and I think that's, that's the bigger danger is, is that place. When you get to the place of starting to internalize stories of fine or just accepting that as our reality, because that's when we lose our power. Oh, hugely. Yes. yes. God, yes. And it's, you know, it's, it, there's so many moments where things like that happen and you hear that and you just think, oh yeah, they've just come to terms with this is how their life is, but they're just settling. Yeah, and, you know, I do love that you sort of said, you know, like if you want to be an Olympic swimmer and you're, I don't know, short as hell, you know, it might not work as well. Yeah. If you want to do certain <laughs> things, you know, the ratio of your body. So, yes, yes there is yep. the genetic thing and, you know, all those sort of things. But there is so many stories right. that we tell ourselves that. Right. But even talking about the COVID thing, you know, that what that brought up for me was, um, so Courtney and I have a salon together and we had to close for five weeks. And both of us had two completely different stories about how we were going to sort of fare through COVID. Mine was hustle like hell. There was no way that we were not going to come back strong and ready to reopen. And like when I think about it, I could not deal with the thought of the shame of the business failing Mm. because of COVID. Whereas Courtney was like, do you know what? We've got pause for five weeks. Yeah, I was just like, like, we do not get this opportunity. Like five weeks of not having to think. She's like, and I have no shame in that. Whereas I'm like, I will hustle and this will never (laughs) fail. But what's really interesting with that, Fiona, is though, is because, because of that shame, like of how you thought of it, you were just looking at me like, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you yeah. were legit like going to kill me for all that. I was like, lucky we're in isolation because I'm going to come over there with the big <laughs> dick and make you. But isn't it funny how do you wish that that had been different for you? Not really. No, I, because it is what it is. It was what it was in that moment and that's how I coped with the, the entire ordeal. Mm. Yeah. But it's amazing to me that the the story that we both had was completely different given that we're sisters and we grew up in exactly the same house yes. mm-hmm. only a couple of years apart, yes. but we just all have this different thought or this different idea of what shame is to us and, and how we're going to go about our lives. Mm. Well, and it, so it's bringing up, I, I had an interesting experience. I definitely, I have the reaction of the hustle side too. If, you know, if there's an opportunity that I'm, I need to seize it. And I have the similar reaction around if anything negative could come out or does come out about me, I better figure out how to write that wrong or run in another direction. And I think it was December of last year, I got this terrible review on Etsy. 
And I was like, all right. So I don't even remember why I went there, actually. I think I was downloading like tax information, something I was like, this is easy. It was, you know, like nine o'clock at night. I just finished cleaning up the house, put my daughter to bed, was just looking for a quick little thing and I go to sleep. And then I go on and I see this one star review with this just kind of scathing little note. At least it feels that way to me within no joke. Cause I noted the time. Cause I could feel it. It was almost like an out of body experience. I could feel myself going down a hole that I knew wasn't helpful, but I couldn't stop it. Like I was just up here watching the train and within 10 minutes I had researched what sort of legal ramifications would come out of backing out of the contracts I had signed for the next year because I was contemplating shutting down my business because I had one review on Etsy that exposed me as being imperfect. And so it, what you're talking about in sort of these different reactions is that, you know, your reaction that got you to that sort of, we cannot let this be the thing that fails us. It's because your initial story tripped that fear wire. And when we feel shame, there are three defense responses that we have that really kick in in those moments. And it's kind of like, I don't know if y'all have heard of the fight, flight, or freeze sort of response in trauma when you're scared. Well, one of the things people don't realize is that you don't choose the response because this part of your brain doesn't factor in logic. Back here where fear is, it chooses the response for you. So when somebody, when I see patients in my office and they're like, why, you know, they experienced some form of physical or sexual abuse. Why didn't I respond this way? Why did I do this? You couldn't have picked another route. That's how your brain reacts. Shame works the same way, but the reactions oftentimes are around how we connect with other people and then that chase and that sort of internal story. And so the the first and kind of main one that a lot of what I think have been termed human givers do is they they move towards. So their route is to people please. They start to feel shame. Someone's mad at them. Say it's a partner that's mad at them. Maybe their boss is a little frustrated or they sense that something's off. They're going to go that extra mile to make everything better. I'm going to do everything I can to be needed, to be wanted. It's the, you know, I think about my mom friends that have their hands in a million and seven things and they are doing them all with, you know, 16 balls juggling in the air at the same time. The second defense mechanism is to move away. So that is kind of the person that's, accepted that story of like, I'm always going to be that person in the room. I'm never going to be able to be in the in space. And so I'm just going to take myself out of it now. And that's the people kind of in the beginning of COVID that just completely assumed that they weren't going to make it. And the, the teasing away part is I think all of us had some trauma and grief that we had to go through with COVID. So some of that was really based in that when it extended and kind of carried with them, that's kind of when it can lead into shame. And then the third reaction, which many of us do once we've exhausted the first two, is called moving against. So that's when you feel shame. Again, this happens to me a lot with my husband, where if he says something and I feel like I messed up in some way, if my interpretation of the story of what he says is I messed up, I'm mean. So my my reaction is I want to make him ultimately feel like crap because I feel like crap. So it's that thing we say about kids and bullies really bullying is rooted in shame. Narcissism is rooted in shame. It's again, this sort of reaction around what happens when we feel threatened. So it's, I think when you boil it down again, it's all science and it's all how our brain is wired to respond to protect us. And so, you know, one of you had a shame response, one of you didn't. And the balance point between that is then you can kind of find the ground between the two. And you can start to ask yourselves, what is hustle to us? What is pursuit to us? But also what's the why that's driving that? Why would it be bad if your salon, you know, didn't excel at this level? Why would it be bad if you took five weeks off and you start to get curious rather than judgmental? Mm, I really love how you teased all those ones out and to show the difference and really stated that we don't choose how we do because yeah. I think as a person, you're like, oh, crap, I wish I was the person that did that instead of this. But it's like, <laughs> no, 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 you don't get the choice. Like that's yeah. that's that's where you get to work so out your right. And you're so hell-bent on it. Like I remember I was so hell-bent on it. There was nothing, like there was no yeah. other option. There was not the three, there was one and that was it. Yep. Yeah. And whereas Courtney, I was yep. just like, what are you doing? Yeah. And, you, and it's very hard to understand how somebody else is having a different reaction unless you realise that that's 
that's how it is. Or that you're even having mm. your reaction. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you were like, okay, if you could in those moments go, right, well, that's my reaction, maybe that's hers, let's have the conversation. I think yeah. that's where mm-hmm. the education around all this is so, so important because, I mean, if we weren't sisters, you could have been like, right, I'm out with this girl, she sucks, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like tapping right. out, don't want to have anything to do with her, whereas, you know, because you had to, you still love me. But <laughs> it's one of those things, though, that it's kind of like, if you could have this education and, you know, you so perfectly put that, Kira, is if you can have somebody explain it like that, you're like, okay, well, in that moment, let me take a step back. Let me zoom out. Let me go, okay, this is mm. my reaction. What is hers? Let's talk about my reaction and hers mm. and how we can come together. And understand. And understand each other. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, to give a really kind of clear messaging that I I try to do this a lot now, I'm not always as successful at it, but it's really, can you put your interactions between when this happened? So when we got noticed that we were shutting down, the story I told myself was blank, you know, that we have to hustle. We have to get to this point. If we don't make it through there, this, this, and this, my experience of your reaction is that you don't care that you aren't as invested as I am in this business, that you are looking for a way out. And that makes me feel sad. It makes me feel alone. And then you say, you know, you kind of anchor on, I know that that probably isn't true, or I know that that's a story. I want to check out with you what your experience is. And I think that's, that is where the conversation comes in. So I don't know for all of you, when you were kids, for us, we had like elementary school and middle school. It's called guidance. So our guidance counselors would come in and they would teach us, you know, things that now I wish I would have paid way more attention to. <laughs> but this idea of like I statements, you know, I feel this when you do this and you kind of write it off like that's so stupid. But it is literally one of the only truly valuable pieces of our education during that time that is like no matter what you do in life, you need to know how to do that. Because now I see patients in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and older, and I'm teaching them I statements because communication and assertiveness, we don't know how to be assertive because being assertive is about how do I let myself be seen and heard, but also allow them to be seen and heard. And where the threat comes in is either I have to be better or the best, or it means something about me if I don't feel that way. Or I have to lose myself in whatever they're thinking and feeling. And that tension doesn't allow for actual conversation. Mm. And that's where ego comes in. That's where the shame comes in. You know, all those sort of things. But if you're literally just saying, I feel like this. but story I'm telling myself. Yeah, but being open enough to be able to go, okay, now please tell me what your story is too because I think yeah. you're so right. It's like you can so easily go, well, I feel this, righty, righty, rah, and however that may look, but you've also got to be able to match that with please tell me how you are feeling or it's just a, a, a competition on ego really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the hard part is we talked about ego for so many years as if, you know, if you – acknowledge you have an ego, then you're egocentric. You are, you know, incredibly self-absorbed. You're this, this, and this, but your ego is literally just the part inside of you that is focused on self-preservation. It wants to make sure that you are seen so that you are not lost in the shuffle. It is truly a survival tactic. It just, when it goes unchecked, that's when it wreaks havoc. And the unchecked experience comes from us not being willing to go into and get curious about why we're feeling that way. You know, why is it that I felt like I needed to shut my whole business down because one person didn't like one particular product that I made? Why is it that I feel like when I get reviews on a presentation, why am I so swayed by anything negative, but also anything positive? You know, why is it that those things pull me in such a direction and getting curious about that? That's the distress. That's the discomfort. That's where people have to go underneath and go, okay, I'm going to sit in this without trying to fix it. And we are such an action-driven culture across the world. It's again, what can we do to fix whatever this stuff is that's getting in the way of pursuing productivity, success, you know, whatever that looks like for people. And it's unfortunately, because I hate the way that we sort of demonize social media now, but social media has been a major culprit in promoting that a little bit more. It also has done a lot in positive ways, but it is definitely something that can extend that feeling a bit more of, again, I, I don't have the time to get curious 
because I'm in a state of scarcity. Time's running out. I have to do this. Why am I not, you know, a 22 year old social media influencer that's making millions of dollars a year? Why am I, you know, in my 30s and barely making enough money to call my business a business or, you know, whatever it is like that? And that notion, I think, is where we get stuck. And that's where our ego comes in and goes, I just want to be seen. But again, like my two year old, she doesn't always know how to make sure that she's seen in the most effective ways. That's exactly how our ego does it. We just judge ourselves for it more because we should, quote, know better now. Yes. And I love that you brought up about the social media thing because I really do think that, you know, and we've said it time and time again about the highlight reel and everything like that. But, you know, looking at somebody's highlight reel, should you be checking your ego in those moments? Because if you're looking at it and feeling a certain way, maybe it's calling something up for you. And maybe that's actually something that you should go into and go, okay, cool. Why do I feel like that? Am I feeling jealousy? Okay, cool. Why am I feeling jealousy? Mm-hmm. I want to do this. Okay. How can I achieve that? How, how can I sit in this and go, radio? Well, is this for me? And not in a story you're telling yourself type of way in a negative tone, right. but like, okay, well, you know, someone with a, set of abs doesn't get a set of abs just from doing one sit up you know what I mean like as an example but you know what I mean like right. it's it's looking at those things and going okay if this triggers me I need to question why it triggers me yeah and, and even to ask the opposite question of what is it about needing that or why am I stuck on that in order to feel settled and what would happen if I didn't get that What if I didn't have six pack abs, not because you couldn't get them, but maybe the cost from your time, your energy standpoint in particular, maybe it's too high. Like I could be running, you know, all over the world and traveling and trying to apply to do these big speaking events and trying to promote my business to be, you know, I don't know, however much bajillion dollars that you think you should make. I could try that. But at the cost of spending time with my daughter, at the cost of having time with my family, at the cost of being able to be the person that can pick up the phone when I choose to, to be somebody, be there for somebody that I care about and that I love. And I think that's the thing we have to check in with. And so, so much of kind of recentering and getting clear on the ego, but rerouting in ourselves is starting to get clear on what do we value and why do we value it? And not getting lost in kind of marketing messages that we should value the six pack abs or the beautifully, you know, put together Instagram feed or the reels and all of those things. And instead being like, I hope that those people are finding fulfillment doing the things that they're doing. I hope that those people are finding joy and completion in that. What does joy and fulfillment look like for me? Because it's likely going to be different. You're just getting caught up in the idea that it should look that way. But if we're really honest, if I say, well, my values are actually X, Y, and Z, not A, B, and C. Okay, well, A, B, and C looks pretty damn cool. But I guess if it's really not a value to me, maybe I can be okay not chasing that and focusing here and finding joy and fulfillment here. Mm, I love that. I really love like, you know, it's really sitting down with yourself and going, okay, what am I being who I want to be, not anybody else? Because I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a huge one. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a thinker, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. It, like, it that's like a think. let it wash over you. It's just so easy to get caught up in, you know, what everyone your age is doing or what people with the same size family as you are doing and, and all of those all the things on social media, like we've just said, but it's yeah. so easy to get caught up in that. Kira, how do you mm-hmm. think as mums we are going to, how are we going to teach our kids to deal better <laughs> with shame? I think, I think that one of the things that was interesting, I joke that when Everly, that's my daughter's name, that when really is older, she's not going to want to do anything to quote, get in trouble because she's not going to want to have to have an emotional processing session with her mom. She's like, (laughs) mom, enough with emotions. Because honestly, since she was like three months old, I've been talking about emotions with her. And my mother-in-law joked at one point, she's like, Kira, you don't have to spend that much time doing that. And kind of just this, you are putting so much on yourself to expect that every time something happens, you have to go through this whole kind of emotional foundation point. But what's interesting is because this is, she's my only child and I am only having one child, which we could spend a whole hour talking about the shame that goes into being willing to assert that in a world that makes you feel like having an only child 
makes you somehow less of a parent than if you have more kids or want more kids. But as she gets older, I see it starting to help. And so I don't think it's like, well, if you didn't start this at three months old, you're screwed by any means. But I think the key of what I'm learning is how do we start to, as, as parents, as caregivers, our job isn't to prevent bad things from happening. I mean, sure, we want to prevent certain things like minimize choking risks, be mindful of, you know, X, Y, and Z. That kind of stuff is really, really important. But when we're talking about mental, emotional, sort of social developmental experiences, we can't prevent that. We're not, I'm not going to be able to prevent Everly from feeling bad in her body. I'm not, as we said in the beginning, shame is a universal experience. I can't stop her from feeling that. But what I can do to help her is to give her the tools and the skills and the open space to talk about it. So one of the things that, again, it takes so much more time and I'm in a position where I'm able to kind of craft that into my day. So I want to be really careful not to shame anybody that doesn't have the time, maybe always to do it. But when I can, what I try to do is to be mindful of when she's experiencing something, how do I pause, help her name and validate the emotion And then give her the opportunity to explore behaviors that might help her experience that, kind of talk about it, share it, whatever that is in a different way. You know, so we see as toddlers, as they're, and I, as a therapist, I've worked with a lot of kind of middle school, high school age people as well. So, so much of the education for parents and caregivers is how do you make space for them to feel seen and heard while also maybe setting boundaries on how behaviors need to look or what communication can look like. And for us, I think as the parents, that means, are we willing to do the work too? You know, so I, again, I'm sure there are points I'm going to do it maybe too extreme, but when I'm having a bad body image day, like it is hard living a life in recovery from an eating disorder and then having a kid or living in a pandemic and like navigating this and your body changing and all this kind of stuff happening and feeling like, you know, even the idea of if you had a certain workout routine and now it looks different, even if you were still moving your body, your body's going to look different. Also, as you get older and things like that. So I just talked to her about it. So we've had really honest conversations sometimes of, you know, mommy's having a, a day where I don't feel as connected to my body. And I hate that I feel that way because my body shows up and does a lot for me, but I don't feel good in my body today. Doesn't mean my body is less beautiful or worthy of love. It means that I feel somehow like I am less worthy of love because of that. And that's something that I'm working on. And then we talk about that and we talk about what those experiences might be. So I think, you know, this this is a long answer to your question, but I think the key is for us to be willing to be uncomfortable a bit longer to help our kids learn that the discomfort is not a threat, that being in distress is not always a bad thing that we need to teach them that having these conversations is okay. They get to feel like shit in their body someday. And they get to talk about what that feels like to be the biggest one of their friends and to have all their friends get to share clothes and they don't get to do that. And they feel like crap about it. They get to have that experience and really validate it without feeling like we have to fix it because we are uncomfortable that our kids feel bad. Cause I think that's the other reason that shame gets developed is for many of us, we were conditioned. You know, I remember being called dramatic. I remember being called emotional. So when I had emotions, you hide them, you perform. This is okay. You can experience these things because it serves the greater good. But if you do these things, well, that's an inconvenience for other people. So I remember at one point living with my aunt and her telling me, I had just found out that my mom was going back to jail and she was having people over and I was living with her at the time. And she told me, put on a happy face. There are people coming over. And like, Everything about me now wants to go back to to the little me and just give her a hug and be like, your pain is valid. And also go back to my aunt and give her a hug and say, it's okay for you to feel uncomfortable about this too. But in the moment, all I knew was, okay, perform, put the smile on. And so I think we have to start learning how to be uncomfortable without looking for quick fixes to not be like, all right, what's the 10 steps to feel this way? What's the five things I can do to, to get the six pack, to do the things and instead say, what does a healthy lifestyle mean to me? What does balance mean to me? What does, what does being in touch with my emotions look like? And is there a way I can get to a neutral stance on emotions rather than say, well, these ones are bad. So push them below the surface because Mm -hmm. then that's when we do it to our kids too. I really loved how you brought up about your aunt there and, you know, you're saying like I would go back to her and hug her because she didn't know how to handle it either because I think that's the thing is, you know, 
so much of our shame can be brought on by a, a, a very small comment um, mm-hmm. that was said to us in that they may not even remember, right? Or an image right. in your head or something that comes up for you, you know, especially when you are a child that you bring on throughout the your whole journey. And I think what's really interesting is like, you know, you also do need to look at that person and go, well, you know what? They actually didn't know how to handle that and their shame was mm-hmm. doing this. So it's not like it's one of those moments where you look back and go, oh, well, you know, you suck. Why did you do it that way? It's like, no, no, no. Mm. Okay, like I need to learn how to handle it and that person didn't know how to handle it in that time. Going forward, all I can do is work on working on it. Yeah, which I think kind of brings up the two other key points for people when they're thinking about working through their shame stories. And so one is this idea of forgiveness and forgiveness of the self and forgiveness of others. And we have so, I mean, here I grew up on like the full house show culture, which was this hug it out mentality, like hug it out. Everything is fine. You have to apologize. You have to be okay. You have to move on. And I think we're so much, we're taught that we just need to forgive and, and let it go. And it means we're sweeping something under the rug or we forgive because we have to, But what we don't learn is that forgiveness is really a gift to ourselves of untethering ourselves from a painful experience, situation, relationship that doesn't serve us. And so really spending some time getting clear on what does forgiveness actually mean and how do I separate out forgiveness from justice? So the justice response might be, I had a different relationship with my aunt after that and unfortunately a few other situations that happened. So the justice side or the sort of response side to that is saying, she's not a safe person for me right now to share those things with. And so I have to change the way I react, but I can also find space to forgive her because she, she is living her story and I happen to be affected by it. And it gets way harder, the bigger the acts are or the longer we've built resentment on it. But I think if you think about our shame and you think about our resentment or our fears, most of them, it's like kind of taking a piece of paper when you fold it over and over and over again, it just kind of gets really weak and eventually it's going to break. It's like we've been doing that to spots in our story for so long. And we just have all these broken pages that we just keep kind of stumbling upon each time because our finger catches on it. And that's where we get stuck. And so there's this really awesome story in, or kind of small proverb kind of thing in a Thich Nahat Han book. And he talked about how each of us in each generation is inheriting the stories of the people that came before us. So our parents, our caregivers, our job is to just take their stories and move them another step forward. And that that's kind of the intergenerational connection. So our parents knew what they knew. So we inherited that. And then we say, well, we want to, we want to be better in this way. We want to grow in this way. We want to do these things. And for many people, when they become parents, they say that, you know, either I want to do this that I didn't have. I want to give these things, or I want to give the same love and even more, you know, if, if I had this really amazing experience growing up. Well, the idea is again, going back to this element, even of self-forgiveness of saying, I'm going to do the best that I can with the information I have in the moment that I'm doing it. And sometimes I am going to F it up royally, but I can find forgiveness for myself and instead focus on how do I grow and how do I get better? And how do I at least think about, am I moving the story forward? And the way we move the story forward isn't by always being better, but, but by saying, what have I learned? What can I take with me that allows me to keep growing And then again, if we go back to our kids, how do we open up the conversation for them so that they can take the story and then move it another degree forward as well? I always really love to, you know, evaluate when I do things and kind of go, okay, how can I grow from there? Because I, and I suppose it might be that action mentality that we spoke about earlier, but I feel like, you know, at least it's an action in a and a nice step right and Mm -hmm. so you know when you're doing things it's like okay cool well from here I I fully know that in some way my kids will look back and go oh I don't like when my mum did this and when Mm -hmm. I have kids I'm not going to be like her in this way I know that that's going to happen and like generations before me that's exactly what I do as well but it's it's sort of looking in that moment and go okay how can I change this how can I change that story so that I don't keep that same and generational how do you story pattern with your kids though yeah mm-hmm. to have that conversation and go well this is where this is what i learnt and how i didn't like it and this is why i do what i do but then you may not like it so we need to have a conversation so we're not ending up in full circle and you need to start <laughs> that conversation as soon as possible but how do you literally 
when we're all sitting at the dining table, start that conversation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what are the words we say? Or, or is it the actions? You know, like Hiona and I being sisters, one of our things that we always do for our kids is every night it was like, you know, what was the best part of your day? That's something that we've mm-hmm. brought in that we love, right? And so that's just our thing. But how do you say to your kids of all mixed ages, mm. you know, from seven till my youngest is, will be three. How do we how do we bring this next step into going? Okay, well, I suppose it's just honesty, isn't it? It's taking the shame away and being honest. Oh man! Did you just say <laughs> I mean, I that's why I was smiling as you were talking. So I was watching you get yourself right to where you wanted to go because the idea is it would it would alleviate distress for us if there was an equation of what to say. Because you want to say it right. You want to do it right. What's the answer? The reality is there is no right way. It's just starting to have the conversation. And, you know, the way I do stuff. So I'm kind of the advocate of how we talk about things in our household. And I think just because of my experience in the mental health field and all the things that I see and and the kids and the families that I've worked with. But there are times that I royally screw up or I say something and I'm like, well, All right. So there we go. And so the funny thing now, and again, she's two, so I can't imagine what's going to happen when she gets older, but I'll say something like, I'm sorry, Everly, I made this assumption. I did this. That wasn't fair to you. And what we say to each other is we say, we're all just learning every day. We're getting new information. And the key that we talk about, so we do a very similar thing at the end of each day. We say, what are you grateful for? And one of the things that we really try to talk about too, is the opportunity to connect more with each other. So sometimes it's like, I learned from you today, X, or I'm noticing this. And I think it's just the willingness to go back to, if you think about kids, the beauty is that they're curious. They don't have to, not everything is black and white for them. They are willing to be curious about things. They're willing to explore things. They're willing to, like, she loves to play in the dirt. She'll go touch the centipedes and she'll touch the other things. So I'm like, don't do that. But she just wants to explore. She's like, I just want to touch all the things and explore everything without this association of this makes me better or worse or good or bad or whatever that is. So if we could go back to that state and just get curious about it, just get curious about, you know, seek to flop with your kids, seek to royally screw it up and say the wrong thing, because that's when you're the most vulnerable and you're going to open the door to have a conversation. If you have this perfectly crafted narrative, you're going to be rehearsing that in your brain versus just being with them. And you are going to know your kids better than anybody else talking to them. You don't need me, someone who's never met them to give you an equation on how to talk to them. You just have to be willing to let yourself be seen by them fully. Yes. I love, 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 love what I learned from you today. What I learned from you today. And what's coming up for me is like, so I always started, I always talk about my one child all the time. I swear I talk about him more than- She has three. I had three, but anyway. (laughs) um, But one of my children is- my son, he's my biggest learner and I'll always say that because he's kind of like my biggest challenge sort of thing and I don't mean that in a bad way because one day if he ever yeah. listens to this podcast, it'd sound like an No, answer. he's just a really particular guy and he yeah. will hold you to account. Yeah, he's yeah. definitely yeah. like that. And so with I think my other two are super cruisy. Like they're just the kids that like in, in some days I'm like, dude, are you on this planet? But, you know, in other ways it just makes life easier <laughs> for me. They're just living their best lives. They, whereas Lane is like... You said you were doing this in a minute and yes. I have assumed that the minute is over and you are not doing it. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so he, he's that guy, which yeah. scares me so badly because he is the guy, the guy that's always like on, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, when, so he's four, right? So he's a twin. He's four. When I drop my almost three year old off at daycare at the same daycare where he knows all the teachers, he'll literally look at the teacher's eye and go, you look after my brother, hey. You like and it's not just like a like a oh you'll do that. He's like I'm I'm watching you. Like you better do mm-hmm. your I'll shit. Circle right. back here later and we're going to talk. Yeah. Exactly. Like if you don't, your ass is grass sort of situation. <laughs> so like he is my biggest teacher and so I'm really trying to show my vulnerable state even though it's the hardest with him mm-hmm. because I'm like he's going to need to learn how to be vulnerable more than anyone mm-hmm. and it's one of those things that when I do snap and I get it wrong and I'm not the person that I want to be I do have to make sure that I look him in the eye and I say hey buddy mum didn't perform oh, not perform but mum didn't do what she really wanted to do this is why she was upset mm-hmm. and, and I'm sorry for I did this but mm-hmm. also and, you press all the buttons and <laughs> and not say but 
to the thing, you know, like well, I don't right, up. right. And versus but idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other two questions I guess I would have is, you know, would you consider telling him how it makes you feel when he does that? Because I think that's important for him to have that modeled too. You know, it's there's there's mixed feedback from people in the world, but like, you know, sometimes when Everly she does this thing where you're with her, everything's great. And then she'll be like, no, mommy, no, mommy. And she'll like push me away. And I'm like, where did this come from? And it's very off-putting. And she also, because I've taught her so many words and emotions, she'll say things like, you know, I'm processing. And she doesn't, and again, I don't know. She totally knows what she's doing, but she'll tell me she's processing and she'll say some alone time, please. And then she'll go away. Well, sometimes she's using that just to not do what she wants to do. Like, I'm aware of that. And it's really fatiguing. And sometimes I want to be like, just get your shit together and come over here. Like, just do what I'm telling you. But what I have to do then is pause and notice what she's doing is triggering a reaction in me. It is perfectly reasonable for me to tell my two-year-old how she makes me feel without making her feel like she's doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll say, when you do that, it makes mommy feel pretty dismissed. It makes mommy feel like I'm screwing up all the time. And it starts to make it really hard to want to keep trying to do those things because I start to feel really bad about myself. Could we find a different way to talk about it? And most of the time now, again, because she's two, I'm giving those answers of maybe other ways we might try to talk about it. And we practice saying them out loud. So that's one thing that came up for me. And then the other thing I'm thinking about is, could you pause in those moments? You know, I'm thinking back to the minute example of like the minute has passed, you haven't done it and be like, I'm noticing when these things don't happen, it seems like you're feeling blank. Can you tell me what that feels like for you? Because part of it is to realize there's something that's happening for his brain when things don't look a certain way. And that is, you know, pretty developmentally appropriate for four five, six years old up into, and particularly for boys, I'm noticing the more I do, the more I learn about child development and my nephew's the same way. And he's, gosh, 12, 11 now. And he's very similar and things need to be a certain way. And what you communicate needs to be your words. You need to be paying attention when you're communicating to him because if it veers off of that, you lose trust. And that really upsets him. So really maybe trying to say, I'm noticing this and really use that term. I'm noticing and try to describe it and put some emotions to it, to help him with that, to see if he can start to say that out loud, because the reality is there's a need he has that is probably not just whatever this thing is on the surface, but there's something that's happening where he is feeling something pretty intense. So then it comes out a certain way. Yeah. I've, I really love that. I'm noticing this and I'm, yeah, that's really good. And I think that's something that would I'll really, that. I'm going to do that for my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Like I have, two, re- I have a son and a daughter and my daughter is very, it's her way or the highway. Yeah, she's vicious mm-hmm. like her mother. Um, <laughs> but that's where we we laugh and we joke. But like, there's so much like us in these ways, and you're like, oh damn, like you just you're just being me back to me, and I don't know if I could do yeah. this. But I'm Stop noticing being a this. Mirror. Yeah, had e- enough of you, child. exactly, exactly, exactly. So I think that's where it's like, okay, I'm noticing this. How can we mm. go forward with that? Oh, I really like that. I'm noticing. This. I have, yeah. and today I've learned from. I've learned from you today. They are really, really good ones. Mm. I'm enjoying those ones. That is so good. <laughs> I, have so, I feel like I just need to go and like write a bunch of things, thoughts. Yeah, because and then like because back. there's so much. Yeah, yeah. Just pause. Exactly. Um, yeah, let's just hang out. Yeah. Everybody go get some coffee, yeah. or I guess tea on my end because yeah. it's you know. So like there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so we've sort of touched in this, and I feel like this is like a realm that we could totally go into deeper. Um, I do want to touch on the eating disorder side of things because I think that that was really interesting when we – and not that I really want to change the subject because I'm loving that, but I feel like you're definitely a two or three person podcast episode. (laughs) So I'd love to sort of hear a little bit about that eating disorder side of things because I think it was so interesting when, you know, you said that somebody can be like, oh, how do we help these guys? And you're like, okay, start with let's open that back up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so – Again, I got into this field, particularly after that invitation for self-exploration and also just seeing that (laughs) I saw several different, I saw a lot of therapists when I was little and, you know, my family's like, oh, you know, childhood trauma, you should talk to somebody all the way up to when I was trying to seek out some support. And I mean, this with so much love and kindness, but they all sucked. 
Like there are amazing people in therapy. I obviously wouldn't do this if I didn't think that therapy was a viable field. And I know so many tremendous people. I just did not find the right people for me. And so I say they sucked as in I didn't get anything that I needed. So it became really, really difficult for me to even know how to talk about these things. And I think the eating disorder side, what I've learned is that we put people out in the world to talk about this deadly, scary subset of diagnoses of mental health diagnoses that have no training on it. And so when I got into this field, I was like, okay. So I mean, I remember I had, I, I can't remember if it was the first or the second therapist, but I had had oral surgery when I was 10 on these glands in my mouth. And she was asking about a complete medical history for some reason. And now I can tell you, there's really no need to know that in an, in an intake form, but she found out that I had surgery. And so she stopped me there and said, well, that's probably where your eating disorder developed because you developed a fixation for your mouth when you're that age. So then you developed your eating disorder. And I, I kid you not, I walked out of the therapy session. I was like, I, I cannot this is like some Freud stuff. I can't do this. And so what I had to learn is that there are some, there's some really amazing people in the field of eating disorders. So I started to get myself connected with them in my training to be like, could I do this? Could I talk about it in a way that is, could I help other people and start to do this work given I've had my own experience? Cause I think we've all seen that, whether it's a friend or in a professional setting, Sometimes it's too close to home and we make it either too much about us or we we can't help because it triggers too much. And one, I just, I learned kind of similar to the thing with my aunt. I learned compassion for the therapists that I saw because they were not equipped to see the patients they were seeing and they were being tasked to see them. Like the people that I saw should have never been asked to see a patient with an eating disorder because they are so much more complex. And so now I have a lot of, I think, grace and hope that they have been able to not have to take that on. But then for me, it was, I think I have the beauty and the blend. And I just, I had, I did two internships during my master's program. You typically do one. So you do a clinical internship and then you have to do an internship after grad school to accumulate a certain number of hours and to prove kind of efficacy as a therapist. And I worked in two sites the whole time, one non-eating disorders and one eating disorders. And then I sought supervision from three different uh, consultants or people in a supervision role. And to be like, am I missing something? Because I didn't want to do the thing where I made it about me. And I think, again, that's what I noticed looking back at some of my therapists is I think that they had their own wounds that they hadn't had time to heal yet. So it was too close to home when they were doing that. So anyways, long story short, I did all that, got tons and tons of feedback and figured out that I have the ability to kind of hold space for both. So I can use my story kind of almost like a lie detector, like a no when I used to work at the hospitalization level and I do meals with people, like I could pick up on the behaviors they were doing to hide food, to not eat something, to try to get away with something, these little things that I don't like the term manipulative because that sounds like they are being sneaky, but their brain was manipulating the situation. Their disorder was doing that. But then I've learned so much about this system. And again, Honestly, I think that the eating disorder realm is really what drew me to shame because eating disorders are, again, on a spectrum of disordered eating, we are, it's a coping mechanism. It is a way that we try to deal with this really terrible distress and what we've seen. And I don't know a ton about this. This is something I just started doing more work on, but there's associations with how we take in energy. And when we're eating that you kind of associate certain things with emotional moods and experiences, you know, so when I'm celebrating, I have a beer, when I have a bad day, I eat a pint of ice cream, whatever that is, but it starts to trigger things in your brain. And there's actual associations with brain chemistry that kind of lead us to be more at risk for certain behaviors. So we're already kind of coming in with a propensity for that. On top of that, all of us to some degree have believed that our body is not good enough. So we experience body image distress and we live in a culture where food rules are taught to be finite and absolute. And since I've been alive, butter has been good, bad, and everything in between. Apples have been good, bad, and everything in between. We're supposed to eat eggs. We're not supposed to eat eggs. Now you're supposed to eat a lot of fat and meat before you weren't supposed to eat any. And so the rules change all the time. You have people like Tom Brady as a football star giving us nutritional information when they have no business telling people what to eat, but people listen. So we have a lot of influence coming in from people that don't actually know science that are talking about things that I think make all of us feel like there's no right answer and yet we're supposed to have it. So I think when I think about eating disorders, I think that the diagnosis really gets developed as 
the severe, almost like a volcano erupting, like your shame is all of the tension you're carrying underneath to keep up the performance. And an eating disorder would be the same as like any other form of self-harm, substance use, addiction. It becomes the sort of eruption of the volcano. It is your brain going full into a survival tactic mode to try to do something to cope with the distress of daily life. Wow. Yes. I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but no, it really would be. Yes, of course. Yeah. <sighs> Mind is blown, man. Yeah, it, it honestly is. Everything that comes out of your mouth here, I'm just like, oh, my God, tell me more, <laughs> tell me more, tell me more. She's like, don't stop talking. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, Kira, we are totally doing this again. Um, whoa. <laughs> that is such a brilliant way to put it, and I think – that it's, education, but just somebody putting it in a way that you can go, okay. And it also brings back connection because you're like, oh, I'm not alone. Oh, okay. Right. That's happened to so many other people. Okay. I can take the shame out of this and let's actually work with what's going on. And gives validation. Exactly. Exactly. Because I think that's Which what takes us back to what our kids are wanting. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Well, and even just if you layer that back into the idea of, because I think now this could potentially, if we have, you know, parents, caregivers thinking about this, then they're going to start thinking about all the ways that maybe they're putting their food stuff onto their kids. And again, the idea is, can we just start to explore what did we learn about food? What did we learn about our bodies? What have we been taught? And again, go back to early childhood. So I grew up in family dynamics where when I moved in and stayed with different family members, you finished your plate and they would say things like, well, they're starving kids in Africa and they would guilt you into finishing your food. Well, you know, looking back on that one, that does nothing for the problems of lack of resources in other countries and things that we could do to actually support people to what you're conditioning me to do is to not listen to my body. And so I think what we have to give ourselves a lot of grace and space and compassion for is to realize that what we've grown up to do is to kind of logic a very intuitive and natural process. So think about your kids when they were babies, they know when they're full, they know when they're hungry, they would communicate with us when they needed those things. What starts to become difficult is when we erode those signals. And if you go back into shame, and again, this hyperdrive to be functioning all the time, what coincides with that is typically poor nutrition and body connection. And so this idea of not getting enough fuel, and that could even mean maybe you're eating, quote unquote, the healthiest thing, but your body isn't getting what it needs because we're on hyperdrive all the time and we're not getting the energy that we need to function. We're not getting the sleep we need to function. We're not getting all these other things. Well, eventually your brain is going to kickstart that sort of survival response to get what it needs. And sometimes that's little mini ways by saying you haven't been giving yourself, let's, I'm just going to use ice cream as an example. You told yourself you can't eat it. That's bad. That's not in the performance self. You got to get that. We'll go back to the six pack ab idea and all these pieces well, then eventually something's going to happen and you're going to want that ice cream. And now what you've conditioned is, well, that's bad. That's a failure. So then when you do it, then you go back to being, well, I'm the person in the room that's never going to have it. Fuck it. I'm eating the whole thing of ice cream. Mm -hmm. So that loops it back into how it becomes a shame response. Then you wake up the next day, you you know start pinching yourself. You think about how much bigger did you get? You get on the scale, you start, okay, I can't eat this thing again. And then it cycles. And so then food becomes a thing that is either good or bad you know, even thinking about our kids of like food as a punishment or food as a reward. If I have to eat carrots to get the cake, carrots become a punishment. The cake becomes the reward. Instead of saying we can have all these things. And if we only gave our body cake, our body's not going to have what it needs to function. The same as if we only gave our body carrots, it wouldn't have what it needs to function. So how do we learn how to experience food for what it can give us, but also the experiences we can have with it? And how do we teach that? And again, for most of us, that means, are we willing to learn that with our kids at the same time versus assuming we have to know how to teach our kids because we should have the answers? That is so true. Assuming yes. that we have to teach our kids because we should have all the answers, because I feel like we, you know, and, you know, the the book of uh, the, the old joke of, oh, they don't come with a manual and no, they don't. But like, right. <laughs> you know, it's so true, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like mm. we just assume that we should, you know, whenever it is or whatever age you are that you have children, whether that be, you know, 15 or 50, it's one of those things. It's like, oh, but you should just know now. Like you're the parent, you should just know. And you're like, oh, fuck it. I don't know. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. And then we're navigating our own stuff at the same time. We're trying to teach them something different. So they're also incredibly intuitive. So they're paying attention to this. They're picking up on the energy. They start to be 20, 30 year old. And they go, well, my mom hated her body her whole life. She never ate what we ate. She always wanted to have just a sliver of a piece of cake because she never let herself actually eat it when we were all having cake or things like that. So they're paying attention to it. They notice it. So it's just thinking about how is the story we've told ourselves about our relationship to our bodies and our food dictating the way we show up in those moments. And what, again, going back to the why, why is eating that every day a bad thing? Or why is eating that once a week a bad thing? Or why is, you know, not working out because your body is exhausted a bad thing versus believing that you have to work out X amount of times because, again, you have the pinned up picture of a six-pack abs and you need to get to that. Whoa. Yes. Mic drop. Yes. Holy yes. shit. There's, if you're a parent, oh my good luck f- with that. If you're in a person, <laughs> you're a human being, right? Oh it does. It God. makes you rethink everything though, it doesn't it? totally does. There's so much to think about. Oh. Kira, we've already got a lot of words of oh, wisdom. Oh, exactly. I know. I feel like an idiot asking <laughs> that question because everything she's just given us. Is there any other extra? No. <laughs> do you, do, do you like... know what? We're just going to have to do another episode. Like, I feel like Kira has just given us so many bloody words of wisdom that now we're just going to have to go like, that was an overall. Now we're going to go into this section, this section, this section, this section on all these different episodes. It's be a regular. Oh, my God, Kira. That is amazing. Kira, where can we find you? Where? You can go to my website at yep. Adversity Rising, yep. and I will put that down, I know, in the show notes, but they can yes. visit me there. And then I'm on YouTube. So if they search my name on YouTube, that's kind of where I post regular content, videos, kind of small clips of information, ideas to help people get the messages that we haven't been given while I'm learning, again, right alongside everybody else I'm talking to. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. That is amazing. Thank you, honestly, so much. Thanks for today. Yeah, mine. Exactly, because you. Oh my gosh! No, thank you. Honestly, so much is because of the space you came in. When we talk about learning, like neither one of you needs to question that you have the capacity to just be in a learning space with your kids. Because the reason this conversation felt like we could go there is because all of us were willing to just talk about things. That's vulnerability. So thank you for being the host that allowed for that to happen oh thank you so much guys we know you're going to enjoy this episode because like i'm the type of person that wants us to listen to it right now yeah yeah you know, you know, <laughs> like, i could i could listen to this right now yeah she's so, going to yeah exactly exactly Kira, <laughs> thank you so very much Wow, wasn't that an epic episode? I love these conversations with they just make my day, my week, my all the things. Yeah, Fiona, you're right. It's one of those things that we always feel that what is said is what is needed to be said. So I hope, I really truly hope that you guys have gotten something as we have out of this episode. And let us know. Get in contact with us. We Please. would love to chat to you. Yes. Shoot us a message on our Insta or our Facebook and definitely leave us a review. Definitely. And guys, look, how you share the love is by actually sharing the love. So make sure you share it with your friends. Let people know because that's what keeps us doing what we're doing. Exactly. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.